Well, good morning, everybody. I, uh, I want to echo Shaka's welcome to you from earlier, especially to those of you who are visiting with us for the first time, especially to those of you who may not yet be Christians. If you're here this morning considering faith in Jesus and what it means to follow him, who he is, what he claimed, what he taught, we are especially happy to have you here and want to tell you a little bit about what to expect from what comes next in our service. Every week at the center of our time together, we build in a time to look at part of the Bible because we believe that the Bible is God's word to us that he spoke through people he chose to use who certainly did belong to one time and one place but that he chose to use to speak across times and places even to our own day, even to you where you sit with words that are true and necessary for life and hope in this world. Because we believe that, because we're convinced of it, we make the Bible central to everything we do and, and, and try to set aside this time each week to try to understand it more deeply than we have before. For the last few months, we've been looking at 1 Peter, an old letter, one written by one of Jesus' friends uh, who, who was left with the responsibility to help people who didn't get to walk with Jesus and watch Jesus and listen to him come to understand who Jesus was and what he was all about. Peter wrote this letter to try to do just that, exactly what Jesus asked him to do, and help some, some Christians scattered across part of the Roman world that's now modern-day Turkey come to understand how they could live as Christians in a place that didn't know anything about Christianity, to live for a new kingdom that they belong to now, even though being part of this kingdom meant a different set of values, a different set of expectations about the world, a different way of being than what they had known before. Everything changed for them uh, and their orientation towards life when they became Christians. And Peter wrote to help them understand how to live in this new reality. We've been trying to go verse by verse through this letter to understand the, the, the hope that it gives to each of us. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn there for the last time. Uh, when I, I'm a little bit of a nostal- little bit. I'm a lot of a nostalgic person. I like to live in the past. And I like to look back over, especially when we come to the end of something, I like to commemorate it. I like to look back. It's just part of my natural personality, I think. But I also think it's a great teaching tool and something the Bible celebrates to, to remember, to recap, to, to, to say again what has been said. It's something that was built in the life of Israel. Uh, part of their annual feasts were meant to do this, to sort of bring back to the surface things that God had done for them in the past that they don't want to forget. And I think one reason is that all of us are just forgetful people. I'm, maybe a better way to say it is that we're just prone to focusing on whatever has just happened in the moment that's right in front of us. And the things that have happened before, even important things, even things we're, we should latch onto and try to keep in front of us, tend to get just pushed down like an email in a full inbox. Recap sermons like this one, I see these as, as, uh, as opportunity to sort of mark the message as unread. You ever do that? I know that's terrible in email maintenance. I do it though. That's how I make sure that I don't forget things is I will mark an email as unread and it'll shoot it back up to the top of my email inbox because otherwise, you know, all these other ones are pushing it down and I'm forgetting something that, that, has, that needs my attention. That's what I want to do with this, with this, with this recap sermon. Not, not cover any new ground from First Peter, but to mark as unread almost some of the main themes, bring them up to the top so that you can see them. We like to do that in general because it's just healthy practice, but I think it's especially helpful to do today because uh, this is the Christmas season. It's a time where Christians around the world are focusing especially on Jesus' coming and why it's good news, why it changes the world for those who believe in it, and why it, why it offers a hope that's 
that's, uh, that's the difference between life and death for anyone who will claim it. We're trying to spend some of that time here for the next several weeks, some of our time here on, on Sundays, helping each other focus in on what the coming of Jesus means, why it brings hope and life to those of us who are claiming it. And First Peter sets us up to do that well. And one reason I want to recap today is that First Peter's main theme was hope. The promise that, that things are different because Jesus came. And by focusing in again on what that hope is, what, what, what we have in Christ and why it's worth trusting, we're also helping ourselves focus in on what this season can mean for us in our devotional lives. One of the ways that we like to, to commemorate these big seasons where Christians around the world are talking about things like the coming of Jesus at Christmas or about the death of Jesus around Good Friday or the resurrection of Jesus around Easter is to take whatever series we were already in, whatever part of God's word we'd been spending time in leading up to it, and see what that section of the word has to tell us about these major events in the life of Jesus that we're commemorating. This morning, we want to talk about how this theme of hope that's so central to, to First Peter helps us to see Jesus and his coming more clearly. We're going to do that this week. We're going to do something similar next week. And then on December 23rd, we're going to reprise something we tried for the first time last year and do a kind of family-integrated worship service. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a little lively in here that day. Uh, but it's going to be mostly carols and readings in a, in a very abbreviated sort of devotional talk from a portion of the scriptures that's aimed at, especially at the children and helping them to understand the gospel and the, through the hope of Christmas. So if you're going to be in town that weekend, please plan to, to be here with us on December 23rd and, and, and stay tuned for some more information on that in the, in the weeks to come. For this morning, now I'm sort of set up what the next three weeks are going to be like. For this morning, what I want to do is come back over some ground we covered early in our series in First Peter. I, I, I'm not going to introduce anything new to you today. No ideas that we haven't already covered. What I want to do is, is come back over some ground that's already been, been treated and to try to bring back to your attention a couple of things that I want to make sure you leave this series with. I want to talk about the effect of hope the hope that Peter wrote to, to bring to our attention on our identity as humans living in the world. I want to talk about the effect of hope on our identity. And most of our time this morning is going to be on that theme. It was so important to Peter. It runs all through this letter. I'm just going to bring back up in front of you some of the places where he talks about that. And then that, that, that'll be most of our time this morning. But after we've done that, after we've reminded ourselves what hope means for who we are, I want to talk about hope and incarnation basically hope and the, the, the claim that Christians are clinging to, that the God who made us has come to us in the person of his son, that he took on a body just like ours, that he lived a life in history, observable by people who were alive at that time, taking actions that have affected history ever since. It happened in real life, in this same world you and I are living in. We want to talk about that as the, the message of Christmas and why, why our hope hinges on that incarnation having happened and been true for us. I want to begin by reading uh, a few verses from the very beginning of the letter. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to read verse 3 to verse 5 this morning, and then we'll cover some more ground as we move through this time. I'm going to begin with verse 3 of chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned I want to start by talking about hope and our identity because it's such an important theme that runs all through this letter and it's so powerfully relevant to how you see yourself and your life in the world. There are two things about this connection between hope and our identity, two things hope means for who we are that I think help us to capture the essence of what Peter's been teaching us. I want to spend most of our time this morning on those two things. I want to talk a little bit about how it is that hope defines us. That's the first thing. And then talk a little bit about how it is that hope distinguishes us. That's the second thing. Hope defines us, tells us who we are, and hope distinguishes us. It tells us who we're not. And in this way, hope grounds our identity in the world. So first, I want to talk a little bit about how hope defines us. It really, this this is the thing that starts with what I just read. Did you notice that at the very top of his letter, when when Peter is worshiping God and celebrating what God's done for us, he describes God's work in us as a new birth. He says, you've been born again. That's what's happened to you. That that phrase, born again, is is pretty familiar, mostly to American Christians. We've, We've grown accustomed to using that for what it means when someone becomes a Christian. But I don't want our familiarity with that phrase, if it is a familiar phrase for you, to, to, to sort of take away, take the edge off the radical claim that's built into it. I think the reason that Peter starts, describes what's happened in us as a birth is that birth has so much to do with identity. To be born, is, for, for Peter here, is a kind of shorthand for the things that make you who you are. So I was born a McCullough. That came with connotations. It made me a Southerner. I can turn on that draw when I want to. It made me an Auburn fan, for good or ill. It gave me these wonderfully good looks and an unfortunate genetic disposition toward preternatural baldness. (laughs) I'm a McCullough by birth, and that came with some connotations for what makes me me. And Peter's readers had been born with an identity, too. They'd been born Roman citizens, most of them. They'd been born farmers, say, or carpenters, or whatever else the family business happened to have been. They would have been born part of a tribe. A lot of the people he was writing to were probably from rural areas that were more tribal. And they would have been born with with, some sort of tribe that had a huge effect on their identity, whoever they happened to be. They had a birth already, and it defined who they were. And now Peter is saying, because of the love of God who foreknew them, Because of the power of his spirit that sanctifies them. Through the work of his son. Accomplished once and for all. They have been born again. New identity. New people. But what identity comes with this birth? Being born again just tells us that that something changed about who they are. But what? If they had been born into whatever family or city or citizenship they had before, what have they been born into now? And Peter says, 
you've been born again into a living hope. You see what that means? Hope is the family resemblance. Hope is what people can recognize. Hope is the family culture for you now. Hope is your family birthright. In verse four, as a stand-in for hope, still riffing on what hope means, he switches to an inheritance. You've been born again into a living hope, he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hope is this inheritance, this new birthright that defines what you can expect from your life. It's a treasure so great and so far beyond anything any of us has ever experienced that Peter can only talk about it by telling you what it's not like. <laughs> Did you notice that? This is an inheritance that's imperishable in a world full of perishable things. It's undefiled in a world that's completely, thoroughly defiled by whatever we touch. It's, it's unfading in a world where everything we love fades. All he can do, the best he can do to talk about this treasure is to tell you what it's not. It's not going to wither and die. It won't be corrupted by our selfishness or our fear of losing it or our pride over it or our unrealistic expectations of it. It's just pure joy that lasts forever. It's an unimaginably wonderful thing, this inheritance. One that's only possible in the very presence of the God who is the source himself, the source of all beauty and truth and goodness. When Peter talks about an inheritance, he's got a background to draw from. He's got Psalms like Psalm 16 that describes God as the inheritance and says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. From, from your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The inheritance is the presence of God himself. That's what Peter's drawing from. But I wonder, maybe this is still a little bit abstract. This idea of being defined by hope so that hope controls how you see yourself and what you want for your future and how you interact with the world. I know it can, stay, it can seem a little bit abstract, especially when, when, when it's defined as an inheritance that's not all these things. So in case that's where you are now, in case you're still feeling the abstraction of this hope that defines me and still trying to, to, to understand what does that mean for me, I want to give you an, ex, an example from Peter a little bit closer to the ground, one step closer. I think one of the sequences of his letter, still, still, friends, we're just still talking about this exact same idea. We're not going to cover any new ground right here. Just Peter coming over the same idea that you are defined by a hope and a future inheritance that's imperishable. Peter riffs on this several places. One of the sequences in the letter that I think I'm going to most remember, because I didn't fully understand it before we, before we dove into it earlier this fall, begins late in chapter 1, when Peter starts talking about the practical payoff of this hope that defines us. He gives us an example of what it means to be defined by a new hope. He calls for love for one another in verse 22. Love one another earnestly, he says, from a pure heart because you've been born again. Same language about identity. With this new identity comes a new signature move in the world. You, you love one another. And the reason is that you've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. So he's still talking about the same stuff he was talking about earlier in the chapter. But when he makes his point this time, friends, what I want you to see is something... Something from this quote from Isaiah 40 at the end of chapter 1 and then something he says at the beginning of chapter 2. I think this is so helpful. When he calls on us to, to apply the practical payoff of this new hope through love for one another, he draws our attention to something true about the world that Isaiah 40 pulls to the surface. 
All flesh, he says, is like grass. All its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers. That's what we know about grass. The flower falls. It's the word of the Lord that remains forever. That's the only thing that lasts. All flesh, all human life, the best of it, even at its most glorious, is like flowers. Beautiful, precious, to be absolutely savored and celebrated, but so temporary. That's what he, t- he reminds us of something true about the world first to help us love one another. And then he reminds us of something true about Jesus. In the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about Jesus as a stone rejected by men that's now become what he calls the chief cornerstone. What's a cornerstone for? It's something you lay down at the foundation of a building. The whole stability of that building depends on a stable cornerstone. If you don't have one, your building is going to fall in. But he's saying, you have one. One that's imperishable and indestructible. Your life, your hope, your future, you yourself rest upon the chief cornerstone that is Jesus. Now, here's why I think he puts these two images together. What's true about all the flesh, all of human life on its own, everything we know about life in this world is that the best of it is like flowers. They're here for a moment and gone. But your life is built on a cornerstone that won't be shaken. Here's why I think he puts these two things together. I think he's, I think he's, he's, he's encouraging us to ask, what hope defines your life? What anchors you in the world? What grounds your life and its value and its purpose? In other words, what is your cornerstone and is it secure? Have you built your life on grass or on the rock that is Jesus? I think that's what he's trying to encourage us to think about. This is why it matters what you hope in. Because either it will wither and fall or through Christ stand forever. Those are the only two options. This week I I noticed a really powerful juxtaposition that, that helps me connect with what Peter's saying here. On, on the one hand, my email inbox, I mentioned bad email practices earlier. I'm about to say a little something else that'll show you how bad it is. My email inbox this time of year is flooded with Christmas advertisements, uh, which, come on, honestly, are not really giving me ideas for what I can buy for other people. They're giving me ideas for what links I want to send to all the people who want to give me something, my nearest and dearest. I don't practice good email maintenance. I can admit that. I, I can't resist a quick swipe that deletes the email rather than the you know, 20 seconds it would take for me to unsubscribe to it. And so I just, basically, I've bought anything anywhere online. They're sending me ads this time of year. And really what these ads are trying to do are help me imagine my life with this product. Imagine your life with 65 inches of 4K high definition, edge to edge, no bevel. And come on, aren't you tired of that LCD screen? This one's QLED. Can you imagine your life coming home to that theater quality viewing experience? Having that to hope for on a Monday morning when you don't want to be at the office? Imagine your life in that sweater. It's now 40% off. Yes, it's similar in color 
to the one you got last year. But this one's cable knit. And this one's got a round neck, not a V-neck. And that one was heathered. This one's not. Happiness, good impressions on all of your friends, right this way. Just imagine your life in this sweater. That's really what these ads are trying to do. They're trying to offer me, at least in a, in a subtle, quick-hitting way, a little glimpse of hope, of what my life could be if. So that's one side of the juxtaposition for my week. On the other side, of the, 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 in juxtaposition to these email ads, offering me these little quick-hitting pleasures, these quick hopes, I couldn't take my eyes off the coverage of the memorial services for President George H.W. Bush. Whatever you may have thought of this man's politics, his life was indisputably incredible. This guy played baseball at Yale. A lot of people, that would have been like enough to kind of hang your hat on for life. Yeah, who are you? Oh, I'm Matt. I played baseball at Yale. To my dying day, I could ride that out. He didn't just play baseball at Yale. He also Fought in World War II, among the youngest of all Navy pilots. He was a war hero in World War II. Came home, started a business, uber successful, by, at least by financial terms. Very wealthy by a very young age because of his success in business. And that would be enough, is enough, for a lot of people to sort of ride out as what defines them in the world. They will introduce themselves to you as someone who started this business. And he sure had that going for him. Then he switched to politics. He served as a state representative in the U.S. Congress. He served as a director of central intelligence. He served as a vice president. He won the presidency. Any one of those would be enough to sort of hang your hat on as something to, to, to point to as who you are in the, in the world. He did all of those things. And if that wasn't enough, apparently he was a pretty nice guy. <laughs> People liked him. He had a good reputation. His family seems to like him. He was married for over 70 years. His kids say really nice things about him. He seems to have been a good guy. He managed to, to maintain a reputation in public life that, that, that many people, probably most people, would, would kill for. And not only did he have a good family life, and not only did he serve as president himself, he raised the president. I mean, most of us, like, once you have kids, a lot of times your, your kids' accomplishments become your sort of avatar for success in the world, right? Like, well, who are you? What have you done? You're going to give a list of what your kids are into. He raised the president. Any one of these things are the kinds of things that you could see as a life-defining accomplishment or attribute for us. Let me put this another way. It's hard to imagine any hope for this life any of us could have that he didn't actually enjoy. And what does he want? Whether he wants some power, some sort of form of control or power, influence, there he had it. You want a stable family? I do. He had it. You want fame? I mean, I'll, I'll settle for a few extra likes. This guy is world famous and earned it. You want a good reputation? Be liked by people? He had that in spades. He had all of it. Think of anything you can hope for in this world. And then see if, you don't, if he didn't enjoy some version of it. And on a scale that, that, that 
you just probably won't. And look what time did to him. Did you see the pictures of him, the videos of him at his wife's funeral earlier this year? Moved, I was deeply moved by his love for her and his affection, his, the way that he mourned her with his family, but also just deeply saddened to look at this strong, robust, lively man as a 95-year-old. Look what time did to him. And no, friends, time will not be kinder to me or to you than it was to him. And no matter, that, that'll be true no matter what we get for Christmas this year. What matters most, friends, is, is what your cornerstone is. The cornerstone on which you rest and whether it can weather the storm that's coming. Earlier this fall, maybe because it seemed like every other friend that I have in my whole life was going down to the beach for fall break while I stayed here, I was paying close attention to that hurricane that came through Florida. Um, I don't remember the name of the hurricane, but it was super strong. And it was one of these that that was going to set records for Florida, they thought. And what I remember about a lot of that coverage, and one of the reasons people were so upset and so worried about what was going to happen, is that they know what codes those buildings were specified, specified the building of those buildings on the coast. Those codes were graded to specific wind patterns. And this storm had winds that were higher than these buildings were made to sustain. That's one thing I remembered from the coverage. I don't remember what the wind was, 150 miles, I don't know, I don't know what it was. But they were coded for this wind, and this is the wind that's coming. It isn't a surprise what's going to happen next. I think Peter would have us see what happens to all flesh, even the most glorious attributes of it, as a kind of hurricane that's coming in. It's going to hit shore. And he wants us thinking about who we are and what matters in our lives. And he wants us looking ahead to that hurricane. And he wants us to ask, are your walls up to code? Can you survive that wind? Or to use his image, what's your cornerstone and can it take the punishment? And with Christ as a cornerstone, defining your life, you can have an identity that is built to withstand the hurricane that is the passage of time. How about your hope? What defines you? It's one of the things I hope we'll all remember from this letter. Peter wants us to. But there's more. There's another angle on this same idea. The centrality of hope, still talking about that. The centrality of hope to who we are and how we interact with the world. We're still talking about that. But not only does hope give us a sort of positive vision for who we are, where we anchor ourselves or build upon a cornerstone that is Christ and everything he offers to those who trust in him. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. There's that hope that defines us. But then in addition to that, Peter talks a lot about how this hope, having it as your cornerstone, distinguishes you from what you once were, from what you once hoped in, and from what those around you hope in. It's hope that makes you an alien, in other words, in the world. A foreigner or a kind of exile. This language of, of sojourning or exile or alien residency is, is important to Peter. He comes back to it a couple of different times, and it's, it's a kind of theme that you can trace through the whole. What I want to make sure you remember, though, 
again, to just to bump this up to the top of the unread email list, is that what makes us distinct as Christians is hope. The content, the focus, the security of hope is what makes us distinct. Distinction, just for distinction's sake, is never the point. It's not like we just need to be different, figure out all different ways we could be different and emphasize those. There are specific differences that Peter has in mind when he talks about us as aliens in the world. That identity is not you know, built around clothes. Christians don't have like a unique take on clothes. Modesty, yes, but, but and, and, and perhaps not, not spending an, an exorbitant amount of money on clothes. There are things that are Christian ethics speak into clothes, but we don't have like a specific line that we're into. It isn't about music. And Christians don't have like the corner on one particular type of music that we, we, we hold to and all others are, are, are different from us. It's not, that's not where our difference shows up or, or our food. Again, I mean, we're gonna, it, it, it matters what you eat and you take care of a body that God gave you and that you not give into substances that can control you. There are things about Christian ethics that apply to our food, but we don't have a distinct set of foods that are okay and not okay as Christians. That's not what defines us. So, so Peter is not giving us this, this new subculture of real clear visible markers that we need to embrace and make sure uh, separates us from all those who are around us. It's not about that. What makes us aliens is what we hope in and how different that is from what we used to hope in. One of the ways Peter says this is back to, to, to go back a little bit. So we're going to do this a little bit this morning, jump around. You go back a little bit into chapter 1. He says in verse 13, to set your hope fully on what will be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus. And what he says to follow that up in verse 14 is, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And what he meant. When he said, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance is don't go through your life wanting all the things you used to want. Controlled by desires you formerly had. Another way to say that would be don't go through life pursuing all the hopes that once guided you. All the things you once invested with such meaning and purpose that once gave you your sense of, uh, uh, of, 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 of purpose on the mo- in the morning when you wake up. What do I want to do from today? Well, before you were guided by these passions of your former ignorance. You wanted another set of things than you want now. Now you're done with that. You're setting your hope fully on something else that orients you in the world. So this hope makes you different. It isn't that you were, weren't hopeful before and you are hopeful now. It isn't that you're hopeful and your friends who around you who aren't Christians aren't hopeful. It's that you're hoping in an inheritance, specific inheritance Jesus has promised for you, and you used to hope on something else. You're hoping in the inheritance Jesus has promised you, and your friends who aren't Christians are hoping on some different sort of object. And when you've got this hope, and one of the things Peter does throughout this letter is try to show you what difference shows up in your life, how you interact differently in the world than you used to because of this hope. Let me just give you a couple examples. I'm just going to give you a couple examples we hit hard throughout the series just so you can see a little more clearly what I'm talking about here. How our hope distinguishes us, how it's hope in Christ that makes us aliens from, from where we were once at home gives us a different orientation toward other people. That's a theme Peter talks about. Touched on this a minute ago. When he, talks, when, he, when he gets to where he's talking about the practical payoff of having this hope, 
not in something that is of this world that will wither and fall, that's a, a limited resource that wears out and you gotta make sure you get as much of it as you can for as long as you can. It's not like that. When your hope is beyond that and is set on something imperishable and unfading, then you'll love one another from a pure heart. That's what he says at the end of chapter two, or chapter one. Love one another. And then he gets into it in chapter two even more. This love command, you know, it's a, the command to love one another, that's basic Christian teaching. But a lot of times, New Testament authors talk about love one another because Jesus loved you. That's an important thing, to follow his model, to love as you've been loved. Peter's making a different point here. Love one another because you've been born again to a, an imperishable seed, an imperishable hope, but because you've got something you can't lose, because you have nothing more to gain than what you already have. Love one another. Why wouldn't you? And then at the beginning of chapter 2, you can see how he, he, he explains the way this works. He says, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. These are the ways you used to treat one another. Back when you were hoping in extinguishable, exhaustible, limited resources. Back when other people were a threat to you getting what you wanted in the world. Back when your hopes were more short-term and limited and this-worldly, then malice made sense, especially if somebody else had what you wanted. Envy, that makes sense if someone else has what you really want. Hypocrisy, that makes sense when what you want is someone else to think well of you and you know there are things about you that they couldn't handle. When your hope is tied to what you might have or not have, might have, might lose, to what other people might think about you. When your glory that you desire is in short supply, then you have to protect what you have and you envy what others have. But that's not the kind of hope you have anymore. You've got a different cornerstone now. So put away all hypocrisy and slander and malice. It's, it's vacated of its power when your hope changes. This hope distinguishes us in the way we treat other people. Here's another example. This hope that you have, it now distinguishes your view towards power. Now, if your view, is, if your view of the world, your hopes for the world are limited to this world, exhaustible resources that, that some, for some people to have, other people can't have. If your world is buffered from anything transcendent, from anything bigger and beyond what we have and experience now, then it makes sense that power would be the main dynamic for you in the world, that you would struggle for what you can get and, and do the best you can with the years you have here. Many secular people who don't consider the world to be created by any sort of transcendent power who tells us what to do and how to thrive and who can offer us hope beyond this world, without that hope, without that reference, many secular people do reduce human interactions to power struggles. And they've got some pretty good evidence for that because power struggles are often the main way we relate to one another and it corrupts, this desire for power corrupts us in a lot of ways. But when you've got a hope that's beyond this world, when your hopes don't rise and fall with who's in power over you and whether you like them, well, then you can honor the emperor even when he's not worthy um, in and of himself of your, uh, of your attention or affection. That's what Peter said in chapter two. He says, honor the emperor. The emperor of Rome was not a good guy. He was not favorable towards Christians. He wasn't saying honor him because he's, he deserves it. He's saying, you, you've got a different reference point. You don't have to ebb and flow with those who rule over you. You're stable. You're resting on a different cornerstone. It's a different view of power. 
says, says something similar to, to husbands in their marriage, or to, to husbands and wives, and specifically to wives and how they relate to their husbands. He says, be subject to your husband, even if your husband is not a Christian, even if he's doing things that you wish he wouldn't do as a, uh, in terms of the values of, of his life that are guiding his life. We talked about how, how radical that was to not feel like you have to establish your own supremacy over him, especially now that your religion is different than his. And Peter's saying, your hope isn't in having a husband who treats you perfectly as a Christian husband ought to. That's a radical thing to say to a first century woman who's become a Christian and her husband hasn't. But he's telling her, power is not the main dynamic that you must worry about in your marriage. He says the same thing to even slaves. Dresses slaves at the time. We talked a lot during that sermon about how different Roman slavery in the first century was from the slavery we know best from our own history. I can't go back through all the qualifications I went through then. I just would refer you to that sermon uh, for more detail. But the main payoff for that one is, again, that, that, that these slaves have a new hope, one that is not limited to whether they can change their social situation now. He's given them a new horizon that puts their social situation in perspective and allows them to approach even unbelieving masters with love and care and compassion and service. That's unthinkable. It's not advice I would give them. But Peter's saying, you've got a hope that makes you different now. You don't have the same posture towards power that you once did. One more example. Because you've got this new hope, this new cornerstone on which your life is built, you have a different posture towards suffering than you once did. This is one of Peter's main themes. He comes back to suffering over and over and over again in the letter. And in several places, he talks about how, he, he talks about how in Christ, with Christ as your cornerstone, when, when his life is your life, when he defines who you are and what you expect from the world, then you should expect to get what he got. He took a lot of punishment. He wasn't liked by the powers that be. He was run literally out of the world by them. And as a follower of Christ, joined to him, you shouldn't expect anything different. When your horizons, though, are limited by this life, by the glories you can have here, by the kind of glory a flower has, beautiful, celebrated, but temporary, then suffering is only ever going to be loss. Maybe it'll be shameful. Maybe it'll be of a tragic variety. But one way or another, it'll always be just sheer loss. But when Christ is your cornerstone, when you're identified with him so you expect something of what he went through, then you expect not only to suffer, but you expect your suffering to be productive and fully redeemed, just like his was. Everybody suffers. It's not a question of whether you will or not. Everybody suffers. The only question is whether your hope will survive it. And Peter is saying, when your hope is in Christ and the inheritance he has prepared and kept for you, then suffering, though guaranteed, doesn't have to destroy you. We're just scratching the surface, aren't we? These are some of the themes we've been spending a lot of time on this fall. These are the themes I want us remembering. Hope 
defines who we are. And hope sets us apart from what we were. Hope is the core of our identity in this world. And that brings me to the last encouragement I want to leave you with as we wrap up our time in this letter. It's crucial for the message of this letter, and it it also gets straight at the beauty of what Christmas has meant for Christians around the world. What what I've just, even just in this this quick flyover I've just given you, much less in the deep dive we've done all fall, we have been making some huge claims about hope. We've been making claims, really, that, that are just rooted in what Peter has said. Peter makes huge claims about hope. Claims that that cannot rest on a hope that's nothing more than an ideal. The kind of claims he's made about hope and what it can do in your life, what it can mean for who you are and how you interact with the world cannot rest on hope that's just an ideal. Hope as an ideal is super popular this time of year, isn't it? The the, the kind of hope that's, that's of the wouldn't it be great if variety. Wouldn't it be great if we had peace on earth? Wouldn't it be great if we showed more goodwill? Wouldn't it be great if we loved one another and traded our cynicism for optimism and despair for hope? Wouldn't it be great if we got everything on our grown-up Christmas wish list? But these sort of hopes, even though I think they're, they're, they are, there's truth in them, that we, we should want the things that we talk about in this way, these, are, these sort of hopes really fit into the category of aspirations, things we wish for, the thought that things might get better than what they are now. But we, we know, don't we, that we need, we need way more than aspirations. Aspirations, ideals, hope as something we want to feel, that, that can rise above the realities of our lives for a time maybe, the way, like, the way like a styrofoam glider can take off when you throw it. If it catches the wind just right, it can actually climb and soar for a while. And even if you've got it all calibrated right and the wings are in the right position, can, can carry on a pretty good distance. It's fun to play with. It, it can take off for a while. But only if you throw it just right. And eventually, under the best of circumstances, it comes back down again. And a plane like that, a glider like that, is only going to go as far as you carry it. And that, that's really what these aspirations that come along with this time of the year amount to can catch wind a little bit especially with the thrill of the the new stuff that we get they make those aspirations a little bit easier to cling to for a moment but but we know that plane is coming back down in january or february or or maybe even the week after christmas we know from exam from experience that an aspiration that depends on me to carry it isn't going very far what we need is not an ideal What we need is not inspiration. That won't stand up to the storm that's coming. The hope we're clinging to and the hope that Peter has been pointing us to week in and week out depends not on an ideal, not on an aspiration that we have, but on incarnation, on the radical claim that none of us has a right to expect to be true except that we were told it by someone who has authority. The claim that the God who made us, the one through whom all things exist and apart from whom nothing was made, took on a body like ours, took on the limits of life as a baby, 
a real historical baby who had to drink and eat and sleep and be carried anywhere he went. It's amazing. A baby who had a specific skin tone, who had hair, who got cut when he fell down, who had to learn to talk, who got excited when his mama came in the room. A baby who grew up under our blue skies, looking up at our sun. He lived and died and rose again in time and space, our time, our space. The message of incarnation is that something fundamentally outside of our world, unlike anything we've ever experienced, not some aspiration we've got to carry, but some divine power that shattered through the ceiling that cut us off from him and entered our time and our space so that something new could be possible. Everything we hope for, everything Peter's been talking about depends on God made flesh. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Did you notice how often Peter went back again to the suffering of Jesus? Not suffering as an ideal, but remember, friends, he kept saying, remember, just as Christ suffered once for all, just for the unjust, just as Christ had to suffer. He keeps going back to these specific moments where an embodied Jesus did his work. For Peter, all of his hope rests on the body of Jesus. And the same is true for us. Everything we hope for depends on the birth of Jesus, which leads to the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Our hope is based on the power of somebody's inspiration. It is rooted in the time and history intervention of Jesus. It is rooted on the intervention that is Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And therefore Christ will come again. This, friends, is our hope. Pray with me now that God will drive it into us. Father, we know how quickly our heads are turned by other hopes. And how little, it seems, our disappointment in those hopes protects us from hoping in those sorts of things all over again. We know that our attention spans cannot weather the temptations that come for us every day. We pray for your help. We pray that the power of your spirit would change our hearts so that we love what we have in Christ more than anything else. We pray that your spirit would protect us against the passions of our former ignorance, against our tendency to forget what we have in you and to forget how little satisfaction we ever had anywhere else and to go running down those same well-worn paths all over again. We want better than that. We want a life founded on the cornerstone that is Jesus, rejected by men, but in your sight, precious and permanent. And so we pray that you would give us hope and make us useful to you in holding out that hope to anyone else who will listen. We pray that you would do this work for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.